I think I mentioned that I had uh, the good fortune to have a long retreat period this past winter and spring. And part of that time I sat here at Spirit Rock for the, the two-month retreat. And sometimes I teach that, but I, I got to be a yogi. And um, I was remembering thinking about that time and I had uh, some uh, pretty bad back problems that came up uh, partway through the retreat. I had to spend a lot more time practicing in the reclining posture because my back went out pretty badly. And um, yeah, it was quite painful at times. And and it rained almost the whole month of February. <laughs> Found out afterwards that the, the road in uh, Sir Francis Drake was closed due to mudslides. We didn't know that. Uh, while we were here, but it really was wet. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I remember and feeling and reporting to my teachers, because I had teachers I was meeting with, and, and uh, I, I remember saying uh, that I was, uh, had a very high level of contentment. I was very, very contented to be practicing, and it wasn't because I had attain some deep blissful state you know i was i was meditating and struggling with a lot of the things that many of you are reporting with wandering mind and sleepiness and uh, all of that kind of thing was there at least some of the time but there was this uh deep well of contentment in my mind and heart And I was thinking about this and, and it put me in mind of, of other times when I've been really struck by this quality of contentment in my mind and heart at times when it didn't seem that likely to have, have, uh, have come. Uh, I was remembering a time pretty early on in my practice um, when I was in India and I was in Bodh Gaya, which is the, the site uh, kind of the temple area uh, near where the Buddha is said to have been uh, awakened, enlightened. It's quite a uh, very famous pilgrimage spot, beautiful spot. Some of you, I'm sure, have been there. And I was on a, a three or four week long retreat, I can't remember, at the Thai monastery, the Thai Vihara. And uh, it was, there were a lot of people there. And um, at that time, the the men were... Um, where we were sleeping was in a, a space underneath the main uh, temple building at the, at the Thai Vihara there. And um, it was not a, not a plush uh, space. It was, you, you couldn't stand up straight under there, but you could walk around kind of like this, <laughs> bent over and uh, it wouldn't have passed, you know, the, the codes that we have in this country for a safety. There was one way in, and we had these straw pallets on cement floor there. And we had mosquito nets, but they were, they were um, closer together than your Zabutans are here. <laughs> we had a little row of space for our stuff. And um, because it was uh, some distance away from any toilets, they had uh, very kindly provided us with uh, two five-gallon buckets to um, urinate in at night. And, um, and it was someone's job to empty those uh, daily. And somehow that fell to me. <laughs> and, uh, and so I remember walking along one morning, having gotten up out of my, off of my straw pallet, um, with my buckets of urine, and um, you know it was it was quite a ways. They they were sloshing a little bit <laughs> en route to the um, to where I could dump them, and I remember feeling this same deep contentment. And I remember <laughs> the the thought in my mind at the time was, if this is what my life is like for the rest of my life, I'm okay. I'll be f I'm fine. And um, so this may speak to some deep um, psychological problems I have. 
that's, I admit there's a possibility. And I also feel like I need to acknowledge that there's, a, there's a, an aspect of my conditioning that's at play here because whether I was aware of it or acknowledged it or not, I, I n- did not have that as the likely foreseeable future for me. I wasn't someone who was going to have to do that job or some job like that for the, for the rest of my life. And certainly there's a way that that conditioning and, and, and the, the way that that you know, it reflects a certain privilege that I grew up with. Um, for sure, and the conditioning from that. That was at play, but there still is something, um, I think there's still an, uh, an important consideration here. <laughs> and I remembered back to my first, the very first three-month retreat, which wa- I had been meditating for about five or six months at all before I sat for three months at, um, at IMS. And uh, again, at some point during their, that time, feeling this really deep kind of contentment where I thought this, I would be fine to just have that be my life. And this quality of contentment, a contentment of mind and heart, is, feels so elusive to us at times, I think. You know, and our culture and society is, is very discontented and, and we always seem to be in some kind of state of lack and there's a lot of... Uh, you know, a lot of energy uh, in the media and in, in the world of advertising that's certainly oriented around persuading us that we, of everything that we need, that we don't have, and that our happiness is, is possible if we get these things, whatever they might be. And there's there's uh, this strong conditioning to, to see contentment as somehow dependent on outside sources, on things we could get or on conditions being a particular way. And this actually deprives us, uh, deprives us of a certain um, real degree of, of personal empowerment because uh, we, see, we see contentment as something that's, that's dependent on something we don't have. We lose sight of the fact that it's an internal experience to a great degree. There's a story from the ancient the history of ancient India in the uh, time shortly after the when the Buddha was living still uh, during this uh, period within two or three hundred years of when the Buddha was living there in that part of the world and uh, there was a a king named Ashoka and uh, he was he ruled um, almost all of the Indian subcontinent from around 268 to 232 BCE. So he had a, a long reign then. And it's said that in his, in his early years of his rule, he was um, very driven by uh, a lot of restlessness and this insatiable desire for conquest and expanding his power and realm of um, influence. And he, he was very warlike and um, started all kinds of uh, battles and, and conquered almost all of India and, and greater portions all the way over to uh, what is modern-day Afghanistan, a huge area there. So he had this uh, incredible energy and this uh, very strong uh, desire, wanting for power. And, um, but it's also said that he was, not a very, he was not a happy person, very unhappy. And there's a story which has taken on somewhat of a mythical uh, tone, perhaps, at this point. But it's said that after one particularly bloody battle in an area called Kalinga, where thousands, hundreds of thousands of people were killed and uh, massive destruction of that area, that he was, um, he was shocked by seeing what his, his axe had, had uh, brought to pass. And... And it's said that while he was gazing out on this uh, destruction, he saw a, a Buddhist monk walking through the area who had this uh, kind of serene, uh, calm demeanor, peaceful demeanor, very radiant in a way. And it said that he was very struck by this and he wondered, how, how is this possible, you know? There's this person, he has nothing but these robes, simple robes that he's wearing, rag robes and a bowl, 
dependent on offerings daily of alms to to have even anything to eat. He doesn't have anything. And he seems so contented and peaceful. And I have everything. I can get anything I want. And I'm not happy. And so it said that he followed after this person and he he, uh, asked him about this and he uh, studied and learned from him. And it um, transformed his life. And it said that he shifted um, from his warlike uh, ways and, and his urge for conquest and power to becoming a very just and kind ruler and uh, really putting the welfare of those in his realm at the forefront of his mind and consciousness and uh, acts. And he, there's a lot of stories about things he did. He, he had wells dug along the, the pathways and, and uh, roads so there would be fresh water for travelers and planted shade trees and medicinal plants so that healers could have them to gather. And uh, he protected animals. He, he made a prohibition against animal sacrifice, which was uh, something that was happening a lot there at that time. He built hospitals and practiced religious tolerance. So he was a big proponent of Buddhism, but he didn't you know, force it on people. There are these pillars that were erected back, stone pillars in India, and there's quite a few of them left. I've seen a number of them uh, called Ashoka pillars. And uh, some of them have this, or the top, it's called the capital, has um, sometimes this symbol of four lions facing in the four directions. And that's the state symbol of India now uh, from that time. So it was this... um, Amazing transformation that happened, and it just came initially from seeing this monk cruising around. You know, and it had this powerful effect. And and the monk wasn't trying to convert him. He was just walking down the road. It wasn't anything special except something in, in his being. He didn't, it wasn't anything he said. Just his being, this uh, expression of a, maybe a kind of non-ordinary happiness or a peace or contentment or some confidence in that, this expression of um, an incredible possibility that Ashoka was able to see there. And it's a deeper kind of happiness that was being expressed in this person's being and different than the kind of happiness that one might um, uh, get through uh, having some pleasurable experience more lasting, more uh, not so uh, dependent on, on something particular going on. A kind of peace, uh, a wholeness there that was part of this being's, the fabric of their being, you could say. And the Buddha was always pointing to this kind of happiness or contentment or peace as, as a possibility, as a reality of something we could realize. He said at some point, if it wasn't possible for you to realize what I have realized, I wouldn't ask you to try to do it. So he always said, um, this is possible. That's why I would ask you to do it. Why I'd ask you to try to understand. And this kind of uh, contentment that is not dependent on uh, external conditions so much, the circumstances. It's not reserved for some special beings. He said this is possible for all beings, all of us. And I think any of us who would choose to spend time like this on a meditation retreat are motivated by some some kind of search like this or some movement of heart towards uh, happiness. We might use different words to speak about that, but a longing for a deeper connection, a deeper kind of meaning in our lives. This movement of heart, no matter what words we might use to, to express it, it's, it's, it's the same in some ways for all of us, and it's, it's quite universal for all beings, not just us and not just human beings. And it's beautiful, there's an inherently lovable quality to that movement of heart. And we can connect with this uh, as part of um, the way we open um, our, our heart and connection in 
the Brahma Vihara practices and metta practice. We connect with this shared desire for happiness, this movement in the mind and the heart. And it's good, I think, to remind ourselves that um, all of our, so much of our struggles in life and all the nonsense and shenanigans that we get up to and other people get up to, underneath, they're born of that same desire for happiness. It's just that there's often a lot of confusion about what might bring it, what might be a good strategy for finding it. Even Ashoka, with his battles and wars, he was trying to be happy. Just maybe some major confusion in there about what would bring it. So we're looking for happiness, but are we looking in the right place? Because if we're not looking in the right place or in the right way, we're not that likely to actually find it. And this this goes to the heart of our predicament and our situation in life and in our practice. And I think anything that any one of us might say in one of these talks is uh, in a way trying to address and explore the question of where do we look for real, true, lasting happiness. And a lot of the time in, our, in the way we've been raised and in our culture, we're not given a whole lot to go on. You know, no one's, there's not some blaming here. It's often a case of sort of, you know, the expression, the blind leading the blind. And sometimes there's some, you know, okay suggestions of well, service or selfless um, action uh, to help others, you know, and, and that that can be a source of happiness. And there is, there's, there's ways, there are ways that that does bring happiness in the mind and heart. But there's also a lot of very questionable strategies, you know, and one of the main ones here in, in this country, since I live here, I can speak about that, is it, that we're offered is, is maybe going shopping is, is often, you know, maybe the best thing anyone can think of. Well, try going shopping. And, and you know, I like to shop. It's not, <laughs> it's not, there's something wrong with going shopping, but it's, it's not a really um, great strategy for lasting happiness and peace. And a lot of the time it, it has the reverse effect on the mind. <laughs> Sometimes shopping is really not very conducive to our ease. So what do we mean by happiness? If we're going to look at this, it's, it'd be interesting to look and see what, what, when we think of what's happiness, what, what comes into the mind? What do we mean by it? A lot of confusion there. Very deep conditioning that's so deeply woven into uh, the way we, we are, our perception, it, it's not seen. And we could explore this in a lot of ways, but uh, this evening, at least for the first part of this talk, I want to look at one very um, powerful place to, to explore this question of happiness and what we mean by that. And it's a place that the Buddha put a lot of emphasis on. We've touched on it already. Um, and this has to do with the second foundation or um, establishment of mindfulness. And Anushka spoke to this a little bit this morning, uh, this um, mindfulness of what's called a Vedana in Pali. And that word usually is translated as a feeling tone. Sometimes we just say feeling, but we mean something very specific in um, in using this word, it points to the uh, a feeling of either pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant, which we shorten to neutral because we're too lazy to keep saying neither pleasant nor unpleasant over and over. Uh, but the, there's those three simple feelings, and it's said that these feelings arise are an aspect of every moment of consciousness, of contact at any sense store, that any contact, anything we know through the senses, in that arising of that experience, this feeling tone of pleasant, unpleasant, or neither of these is an aspect of that. It arises with that. It's a common factor that comes up all the time. 
We don't notice it a lot of the time, especially if it's in the realm of neutral or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. We take it for granted and we often assume that it is an integral part of the object or the experience. We tend to think that it's embedded in that, that it's pleasant or it's unpleasant, as though it's just an inherent aspect of something and a fixed kind of thing, but it's not. Uh, not that way. And we, there's some obvious examples of this. I have a friend who um, I basically think is an okay person. Um, he's a meditation teacher, a colleague, and um, you know, I have a lot of respect for him, but he has a, a very deep uh, problem in that he does not like raisins. <laughs> and um, and he, he finds them to have anything to do with them very unpleasant, and especially if they are in oatmeal. Now, I happen to believe um, that the, the truth, and this is a deep, this is like the fifth noble truth, um, oatmeal without raisins is actually poisonous, and that raisins function to, to actually make it so that it's not dangerous to eat. And um, so we don't s- see things the same in this regard. <laughs> you know, and the poor raisins are, are the raisins are innocent in this. Um, they, they aren't doing anything but being raisins. But I happen to really enjoy raisins. My friend does not. And, um, but if I eat, you know, several cups of raisins at a certain point, the pleasantness of the experience is probably going to shift and I may reach a point where I never want to see a raisin again where I to just keep consuming them. So the pleasant feeling is not fixed and it could shift and change. And it's not the same for any one of us and it's not the same uh, for, for all of us or, or for any one of us um, in an ongoing way. It can shift and change. But we have deeply conditioned responses to this, this feeling tone, especially obvious in the case of pleasant and unpleasant those feelings that come. There is a strongly conditioned movement of mind towards, of grasping, of holding, of moving towards that which is experienced as pleasant and a very strong conditioned response uh, away from either trying to push away or retreat from that which is experienced as unpleasant. And with uh, things that have a more neutral uh, tone, we generally tend to just not notice. Kind of a, a spacing out or a losing connection, losing touch. Now there's nothing wrong with having pleasant experiences. They're good to have and um, a thing to be enjoyed. And wanting to avoid unpleasant, painful feelings and sensations is nothing weird about that. That's natural too. No one really wants to experience pain. but. But this, sh- this shift between pleasant and unpleasant is just part of life. We get both of these things. We can't avoid unpleasant altogether. We can't only have pleasant. So that's not the problem, pleasant or unpleasant. That's not, not our dilemma. It's not in that these things come. But what happens then is that our, one of our strategies for finding happiness or contentment is to try to string together as many pleasant ones in a row as possible while at the same time trying to avoid any unpleasant ones. And, you know, we have limited success with this. We might have noticed it here on the retreat because we may have found ourselves somehow in this realm. (laughs) Maybe just even with our sitting... I remember one time early in... very early in practice... I, I thought that, you know, one was supposed to be able to sit with no discomfort in the body. And, and I would, I remember, I, you know, so I'd be shifting around and then I found, ah, I got it. You know, the perfect posture. I propped it here and shifted it there and felt really good. And then, and so disappointed when after, you know, 30, 40 minutes, it wasn't, you know, I thought, oh, I, I got it. What, you know, it's, something went wrong. <laughs> You know, and we can see this, how this movement towards pleasant, away from unpleasant, 
operates in our lives so much of the time and it, how extreme it can get in uh, the ra- range of addictive kinds of behaviors of either, either the craving for pleasant or the craving to not feel unpleasant and how this can uh, just be the driving factor in, in our lives. And any of us who've struggled with addiction uh, know this only too well. And in our practice, you know, what's a good sitting? Often it's a higher percentage of the time where there were pleasant feelings in the body or pleasant mind states and bad one, higher percentage where it was unpleasant in some way. That's often how we relate to good and bad sittings. And, um, you know, it's, it's, inter- it's good to look at this because... Um, And there's a reason why there are four foundations of mindfulness and one of them is just this. The Buddha stressed this for a very important reason. Because learning how to navigate the change between these, to be with these things in a balanced way, has profound implications in our life and in the world too. I mean, there are wars in ancient times and in modern times that have probably been the result of someone who was unwilling to be with, unable, unwilling to be with an unpleasant feeling and decided that they should start a war to deal with that so they didn't have to feel something unpleasant in the mind. So it's, it's obvious that uh, us, this, this search to only have pleasant or to only to always avoid unpleasant is a setup for failure in a life that's exhausting because we don't get that kind of control. It's, it's, not a, it's not a reliable strategy, but, but if it's interesting then to look and see what do we really do, <laughs> you know? Secretly, we're holding out some hope that, that maybe the meditation practice is going to give us a tool to pull this off. And that, you know, enlightenment is some kind of steady state where it's only pleasant. You know, but the Buddha had back pain and all kind of tsuris in his life. You know, he had people trying to give him a bad name and kill him. All, he, he didn't have only pleasant feelings. And we can't arrange it that, to be that way. So this is a problem. There's a dilemma here. If we don't if we're not getting the control to make it be the way we want it to be, what are we going to do? This is a big problemo. It goes to the heart of the matter. So if we want to get to the root of it, we need to really open to the, what I'd say is the depth and the breadth of the, uh, there's a deep insecurity that underlies our situation in life. And so this is a lot of what the Buddha was exploring. He was exploring this predicament and, and the, the related existential questions of what's it about with birth, aging, and eventually death? What's, what's, where's the meaning? If my, that's my trajectory here. <laughs> you know, Joseph spoke about this. If, we're, if death is is where we're heading and there's aging and sickness and things we aren't going to like along the way, what, what's, what's the meaning? Where do we find meaning in life? So there's a couple of key understandings I want to touch on now in, in, in the talk tonight that the Buddha uh, came to. These some key understandings that help, uh, help us uh, address this, this situation. So the first of these is a, a deep understanding and a wise and meaningful relationship to what is called dukkha in the Pali language. So dukkha. This is, um, goes to the heart of the teachings in the Four Noble Truths. The first noble truth is the noble truth of dukkha, often translated as suffering. That's a, there's some validity to that translation, but it's too limited. Uh, the word, we don't have one word in English that captures the full meaning of this word, dukkha. 
a couple of levels um, to to pay attention to. One of them is just um, an elemental level of pain and painful feelings in the body that just come because we have a body associated with taking birth, with life, with aging, with sickness, and the process of dying when that comes, and, and the difficult, painful situations that come in life that, um, that are an aspect of this. It's just part of the nature of things. We get that. We get, we get pleasure and pain, and we get um, all of these, these conditions that come in when we take birth in a body. And then there's a more subtle, a somewhat more subtle understanding of, of dukkha that uh, has to do with a kind of unreliability or insecurity. And Joseph touched on this in his talk on impermanence, that there's this unreliability because things are always changing. They're not dependable. So this unreliability, insecurity, applies to everything, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. Pleasant things don't last. Unpleasant ones last too long <laughs> sometimes. So there's this inner anxiety because of the changing nature of things. It's un- life, there's an unsatisfactoriness, unreliability, unsatisfactoriness, different translations of the word dukkha also. It's not satisfactory because it's not under our control. We can't have it only be the way we want it to be. It doesn't mean that we don't have good times. It's not about that. But we're strongly conditioned to think that we're supposed to be able to get our lives to the point where it's always the way we want it to be. And, you know, it should look like a TV commercial where everyone's so, they're so happy and beautiful. And we need to be happy, we should be able to be happy and beautiful too. And, and so when we can't pull it off, then it leads us to taking this noble truth of dukkha personally as though somehow it's our fault. And we see that if we can't get it to look like the TV commercial, then it's just that we just don't have our act together. And, and aging and sickness and death also is just a reflection of our ineptitude or our bad taste or something. You know, if we, we, it shouldn't be happening. Someone gave me a magazine article with this... Um, cover says, can Google solve death? You know, it's Google is, it's doing everything else for us. Ah, uh, John Google, we call ah, uh, John Google when we want to re- get research for <laughs> some dog, Dharma talk subject. We go to ah, uh, John Google. And, uh, you know, it's like as though death were this mistake that can be fixed and solved. It's a wacko attitude, friends. But, but we, we look at this way, you know, it's as though it were something that's not supposed to happen. And if it does happen, it's because we blew it somehow. You know, but we're going to get this range of good days and bad days and joys and sorrows and all of what's called the 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows in life. And it's not that we're helpless or powerless and we add add what we can in terms of our energy and and. Uh, we can move our lives in, in good ways and we do our best to live well with grace and integrity. But we don't have absolute control and we never are going to have control in this way. And so there's the second understanding that the Buddha came to was that stress and struggle, really deep suffering in relation to this unreliable, uh, unsatisfactory nature of conditioned existence that, that stress and struggle and suffering in relation to that is really um, an internal thing. That it has to do with how we're relating to that truth, that noble truth. And of course there's real suffering in the world and, and there is sickness and there's oppression and poverty and injustice and sometimes life is just hard. There is this reality but so much of the time, our struggle and suffering uh, in relationship to it is the result of resistance and denial and often futile attempts to try to control it, manipulate it. And it may seem obvious to us, but it, 
um, it runs counter to our conditioning in so many ways and to uh, the way we look at things because we're so conditioned to look outside ourselves for the source of our, our suffering and the solution to it. We tend to look outside in the things of the world and the conditions. And, and this is not, a, this is not a, a, a recipe for resignation and defeat, you know. This is actually, this is good news. That it's, it has to do with how we're relating to the truth of uh, change and, and unreliability, uncontrollability. Because if it was totally dependent on external circumstances, our, our prospects wouldn't be that good. Because we're never going to get the control to, to have it be only a certain way. But we can, where we do have some power to, to maneuver and, and work and look at this is in our internal world. We have some chance there. We can add something into this equation. So the Buddha saw there's this deep misunderstanding about what might actually bring happiness, but we can undo the misunderstanding. And since the key to contentment, freedom, peace can be found within our own mind and heart, then we can learn a new way to live and a new way to meet life, a new way to meet the conditions with some ease and balance. And we can find freedom right within this uh, world of change and unpredictability. There's one famous uh, quotation from the Buddha where he said, now and before I teach one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. Two things, but one sentence. <laughs> but it's a radical statement. I teach suffering and it's the end of it. It's so key to what we're doing here. To realize the end of suffering, we have to open to it, understand it, understand its cause and let go of that cause. That's the way to peace. That's a strategy that might actually work in the long run. And it can lead to um, this understanding and this exploration can lead to a transformational shift in how we look at things in our consciousness. Because if we understand that suffering and non-suffering in our lives to a great extent is related to how, how, we are, um, how we're relating to the changing nature of experience to our lives, to what comes and goes, then we can shift and we're not seeing everything in terms of, of um, what we, in good and bad and what I like and don't like and what I want and don't want. It lets us shift out of that um, endless cycle into seeing things in terms of what leads to suffering, what leads to the end of suffering. You know, and it, it's, this, is the, this is, opens the door to the practice. This is where we start. This is where the Buddha started. Because if we, if we don't start here, we're always going to be looking for a way out. <laughs> and we're going to be turning to that which by its very nature is incapable of bringing us ha happiness. It's, we're asking it to do something it can't do. The Thai uh, teacher Ajahn Shah uh, addressed this and he had a very um, direct and pithy way of, of teaching and he said uh, this. There are two kinds of suffering, the suffering that leads to more suffering and the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. If you are not willing to face the second kind of suffering, you will surely continue to experience the first. So if we're not willing to actually open to the, this truth of this unreliability, this unsatisfactoriness, to get to really understand dukkha on this level, opening to it, we'll be unable to see uh, the cause of our own stress and struggle in relation to that. So opening to this is, is key. It leads us to... Um, something that might actually be a reliable strategy for finding happiness or contentment or peace. We start looking in the place where we might find what we're looking for. 
<coughs> in my opening talk, uh, short talk, uh, my part of it on the opening night, I quoted a, a teacher, um, priest named Henri Nguyen. And uh, I'd like to read something else from him that I, I really like. He said once, the spiritual life is a life in which we wait, actively present to the moment, trusting that new things will happen to us, new things that are far beyond our own imagination, fantasy, or prediction. This indeed is a very radical stance towards life in a world preoccupied with control. I think this idea of waiting actively present to the moment is a, a very um, very beautiful description of our mindfulness practice, really. It points to something uh, very key there. I have a colleague, friend, who uh, talks about this as uh, an attitude of soft readiness, which I think also has a very nice um, way of, of uh, capturing this flavor of of our practice and mindfulness practice. There's this sense of trust. We're trusting that some that new things will reveal themselves that may be beyond what we've conceived of or could ever have predicted. And can we possibly meet our life with this softer readiness or uh, what Suzuki Roshi, the teacher that uh, one of us, maybe it was Joseph, uh, mentioned, he used to call this beginner's mind, his famous book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. I was once on a long retreat living as a, in monk's robes in Burma with uh, our teacher Sayada Upandita. Uh, we've spoken about quite a lot. Kamala told a lot of stories about him. And, and there was one time... Sometimes someone will say something that's very simple and obvious and it, it strikes us in a profound way. And he, I remember he said at one point, he said, that which did not exist takes birth, arises, has its life and falls away. Something to that, um, something like that. And it was profound uh, in that moment of this sense of of the moment taking birth, taking birth in each moment. You know, we think we know what a breath is and a sound and a step and a sensation. and We think we know everything. And we miss the fact that it's every moment is new. This has never been here before. It will never be here again. It's fresh and new. And we skim along the surface of our life so much of the time we don't actually show up because we take so much for granted and we think we know it. We think we know what it is. And it's not easy to have this stance of uh, waiting actively present and trusting. It's not an easy thing to do all the time. We don't have a sense that there's anything to wait for, or we may not have that kind of uh, trust all the time. It takes real courage to do that. It's a leap into the unknown, a leap of faith, you could say. And it, it takes courage and strength. It takes kindness. It takes the patience that Kamala spoke about so beautifully last night because it might not come in the very next moment, this new thing, <laughs> this understanding or whatever it might be. There's an interesting and, and kind of counterintuitive teaching um, that, um, that speaks about uh, dukkha, suffering, as an opening to that, as the, um, the causal factor, the, the thing that leads to the arising of faith or confidence. That might not seem like an obvious connection to us. Why would that, why would that opening to that lead us to faith? This is again from Ajahn Chah. In our practice, in Dhamma practice, we begin with the truth of dukkha, this pervasive unsatisfactoriness of existence. Dukkha is really the truth, but we want to get around it somehow. Dukkha is a noble truth. 
If we allow ourselves to face it, then we will start to seek a way out of it. If we are trying to go somewhere and the road is blocked, we will think about how to make a pathway around. Now there's a, a shift of view in this. And rather than struggling and fighting against the fact that the road might be blocked in this way, in this image, we look for a way, a new way. We're not trying to always have to be able to control the uncontrollable. And then falling into despair because it's blocked and we can't get through there. We look for it in a different way. And so opening to the truth of dukkha in this way can lead us to uh, confidence and, and a f- kind of faith through this shift of view that where we let go of our struggle and against, we let go of fighting against the way it is. We look for another way. In, in Pali, in this ancient language, uh, the word sadha is the w- word that's translated often as faith or trust or confidence. Literally, it means that which supports or upholds confidence and trust. And uh, Sharon Salzberg, one of the founders of IMS, a uh, uh, very la- <coughs> wonderful teacher, she likens this uh, sadha faith in this way uh, to um, uh, some place that's safe that we can place our heart, a safe place to put the rest of the heart, like a refuge. We're a safe harbor. We can't always find this, this confidence that allows us to adopt this kind of stance of, uh, of with waiting actively present, trusting that something will come. Often in our practice, in the initial phases of our practice, we borrow the, the confidence of our teachers. I know this was true for me. They seem to be, uh, have found something and I could borrow that. It made sense to me. It gave me something to explore, not to believe, but I could borrow the confidence there in a, in a useful way. It gave me something to, to keep going on. But eventually we have to find our own trust and confidence that, that, uh, borrowing the confidence of another or some initial uh, brightness of confidence that might come from an experience only goes so far. We need something more um, deep and personal to uh, give us the strength to continue and to stay the course. And, and we can see how this uh, comes, in, comes into play and, and the importance of this in terms of uh, times of doubt in the practice and the hindrance of doubt that uh, may come up at times. I know many of you have reported this in the group meetings. Just wondering, what am I doing here? And what does this walking up and down have to do with anything? <laughs> Certainly I can't link it to liberation. Sometimes it feels that way. At times we just feel like I can't do it. It's too hard. And we compare and we see, you know, everyone else seems like they're sitting like the Buddha and we just have this wild, crazy mind and this restless, uncomfortable body that won't behave and, and it's, it's doubt will arise at times. And we're going to run up against it at times and it seems to have been, seems like it's part of the deal and it, in the story of the Buddha on the night of his enlightenment, that he was assailed by the armies of Mara and first it was all kinds of weapons and then all kinds of seductions and, and um, you know, he, he wasn't moved by them. And the final thing that Mara, the personification of, of um, kind of the, the kilesas, you could say, it was kind of like the Buddha had like a really bad multiple hindrance attack. You know, they all showed up. <laughs> And the last thing Mara assailed him with was, was doubt. He said, who, who, who do you think you are? What gives you the right to sit here? And it's said that the Buddha did this with this statue here, reached down and touched the earth, this Bhumi Sparta Mudra. He said he touched the earth and the earth shook in, 
and uh, resonated and shook uh, with um, him saying that the earth bears witness to my right to be here, to sit under this tree with this determination to, um, to realize what, I can, what can be realized. So this practice and the power of, of mindful awareness that we're cultivating here, this, um, this, is, this is a huge thing. This mindfulness is a complete game changer. It makes everything possible. With mindfulness, everything is possible. Without it, nothing is possible. Without it, we will just be living out our conditioning. We'll just be rolling on that wheel. But with mindfulness, we can shift our view and vision. And, and this, uh, a true refuge, a kind of real refuge, can be, uh, be there because it's always possible. It's always possibly there. And a safe place to rest our heart is, can be there. And it doesn't matter what's going on, what the conditions are. And, and this um, mindful awareness gives us a strength and willingness to open to and touch and rest in the truth of the moment. And right there, this is the movement that strengthens our faith and confidence, our trust, allowing us uh, to begin to surrender to the truth of things, to the way it is, to the moment. It gives us a strength of heart to, to, to investigate and explore and maybe make mistakes and to learn from that, to not be perfect. This is one of, the greatest, one of the greatest gifts of this practice that I feel like I have uh, gotten to at least to some extent is the, um, the gift of not having to do this perfectly or be perfect at it. And I've discovered that perfection is not a prerequisite for uh, insight and awakening. There's a beautiful quotation from a poem by the third Zen patriarch called Verses on the Faith Mind. And this one line in there says, to live in the highest realization is to live without anxiety about non-perfection. And we could think of what this means in a lot, many ways perhaps, but there's two things that I think it points to. One is that there's an acceptance of the inherently imperfect nature, unsatisfactory nature of conditioned existence, you could say, because it's always changing. And there's a confidence that we can be who and what we are. We don't have to take everything that happens so personally. We don't have to always be thinking that there's something wrong with us that we have to fix. We can let ourselves be. And we allow things to unfold uh, one step at a time. And difficult times in practice in our lives are, we don't have to take them so personally in that same way. We don't have to see it as our fault. We don't have to use it as ammunition against ourselves, as evidence that we're not okay or there's something wrong with us. So we can be with the times when it's difficult. We can be with the times when it's pleasant and good and there's joy and ease and we don't have to be afraid that they're going to pass because our basic okayness it does, is not dependent on them staying there. We're not asking them to do something they can't do. They, we're not asking them to be the source of our, our contentment or okayness or peacefulness. So things can come and go as they will. Good times, bad times. Good day, I'm okay. Bad day, I'm okay. And, and our trust and in this uh, mindful awareness, in this capacity that we all have, you have it right now, check it out. You can ask yourself, am I aware? Is there awareness? You could, that's a good thing to ask once in a while because you get to always say yes. You cannot ask that question and say no. You might not have been aware. You might not be aware in the next moment, but in the asking of that, yes. 
and it's simple and natural. It's a capacity of the heart that we all have. And we start to trust this because we see that it's not affected by what it's aware of, what it's known, that the awareness of anger isn't angry. The awareness of fear is not afraid. We see that ultimately this capacity of mind can hold whatever arises and not be shaken to the core. Yeah, it's hard sometimes. And so this uh, expression of of happiness, contentment that was there in this uh, monk that Ashoka saw, that's a real possibility and it's it's there throughout the practice. It, It can arise in moments. It's like the temporary Nibbana that Joseph spoke about. Moments when we can open into that state of non-struggle. And just because it doesn't last, may not last, doesn't mean that it's not real. And it points to a great deep uh, possibility for us. We get these tastes of freedom here and now. This special kind of happiness that's not dependent on uh, external conditions so much. And it's just born of this deep intimacy with the truth of things. We're standing on reality. We stand on the truth of the way it really is in this. So there's a clarity, a strength, a happiness that comes from this shift in the angle of our vision we stand over here and we look in this way and, and we see something that's always there. We're not getting something that we don't have and we're not going somewhere other than where we are. That's not what we're doing here. We're just looking in a different way. And it's simple, but it's profound. And so we can find a place of true refuge right in the middle of um, the change and unpredictability of life. We find balance and ease and peace right there in the middle of it all. We don't, getting out of life, we're right in it. So I'll close this evening with some words from another, uh, one of the Thai forest teachers, a monk named Ajahn Phuong Jyotiko. It's from a, a book called Awareness Itself. You just have to keep being observant of the mind. Awareness itself. It's not the case that the mind isn't aware, you know. Its basic nature is awareness. Just look at it. It's aware of everything. It's aware, but it can't yet let go of its perceptions and the conventions it holds to be true. So you just focus your investigation on in. Simply keep at it. If you're persistent like this without letting up, your doubts will gradually fade away, fade away. And eventually, you'll you'll reach your true refuge, the refuge within you, this basic awareness. It sees clearly through everything. This is the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha appearing within you as your ultimate refuge. It's sovereign in and of itself. It knows clearly and truly all around. That's the true refuge within. So we can keep sitting quietly for a moment or two and just let these words drift off.
thank you for your kind attention this evening. And we have some time, uh, about a half an hour, for some walking meditation and um, the chanting. For those of you who have the energy, please come. Um, we're starting to get pretty good at it. And uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful chant. So even if you don't feel like chanting is your thing, you could come and listen. Um, yeah, so please be welcome for that. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.